Hi everybody, welcome back for our third lecture on South Asia. In this lecture we'll be taking a look at the uh, political geography as well as the economic geography of the region. Um, and the map that's on the, uh, on the slide that you can see now shows some of the uh, current uh, political problems, geopolitical problems in the region. And we'll be talking in more detail about some of these. We'll be talking about some of the ethnic conflict between uh, the indigenous tribal peoples and recent migrants uh, from Bangladesh and India as they move across the borders and that causes problems. Uh, we'll also be talking a bit about the civil war in um, Sri Lanka uh, that uh, actually ended in 2009, hopefully it has ended in 2009 and the, and the area remains peaceful. Uh, we'll also be taking a look at Jammu and Kashmir uh, and the conflict uh, between India and Pakistan over this territory. We'll be taking actually a pretty close look at this. And as you can also see, there's other uh, geopolitical uh, issues in the region, such as uh, areas that are claimed by India but are controlled by China, and areas that are uh, uh, claimed by China but are controlled by India over in this area. Uh, and we actually talked about this, I believe, when we talked about Central Asia and when we talked about East Asia as well. Uh, so there's lots of interesting um, geopolitical issues in this region, uh, and uh, they're of global significance, mainly because both India and Pakistan uh, have uh, nuclear weapons, and if either one of those uh, would decide to use a nuclear weapon, that could obviously be some uh, cause some serious global issues. Um, we also have uh, uh, areas that are experiencing some separatist movements, particularly up in this area here, uh, in the Punjab area, where the Sikhs, as I mentioned before, I believe, uh, would like to separate from India uh, and form their own country of Khalistan up in this area. We'll talk about that as well. And then we have some areas where we have Maoist rebels uh, that are causing problems and would like to create a socialist state in some parts of India as well. So we'll be talking about all these uh, different areas that are uh, experiencing problems in this region and then we'll move along to talk about the economic geography. So I want to start off with looking at uh, some of the earlier uh, geopolitical changes that have occurred in this region because I think it really helps us to understand what's going on in the region currently. Uh, the British ruled this area politically and uh, this is really what kind of united the region in the 1800s. Any prior unity in this region was cultural. Independence has resulted in the, uh, in the separation uh, independence from Britain, that is, has resulted in the separation of Pakistan and India. So let's talk a little bit about South Asia uh, before and after independence. The British actually arrived in this region in the 1500s and settled mostly on the coastal areas. So mostly in this area here, as you can see, uh, right along the west coast from most areas. And actually this is the area where Arab traders also came into the region as well. Um, the British arrived in the 1500s, settled on the coast. At this time, the Mughal Empire, the Muslim state, ruled the northern part, and southern India was controlled by a Hindu kingdom. So as you can see on this map, the Mughal Empire actually controlled a large proportion of this area, and the Hindus had actually been pushed to the very southern part and also onto the island of uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, the, the 1700s saw political and military uh, turmoil. Uh, the Mughal Empire was weakened. The Hindu state of Maharashtra, uh, in Maharashtra, uh, Maharashtra uh, was strengthened. Uh, the British con uh, then we'll 
let's move on to take a look at the British conquest. The British East India Company, uh, sometimes just referred to as the company, monopolized trade in the area. It was a private organization and acted as an arm of the British government. The company made strategic alliances with Indian states in order to defeat the latter's enemies. So essentially what they would do is they would uh, make uh, alliances with different groups of people so that the, uh, and those alliances would uh, obviously uh, strengthen uh, uh, some of the uh, states and, and help them to defeat their enemies, but it also helped, helped to strengthen the ties between uh, the eventual victors and the British East Indian Company as, as well. Um, so through this, uh, it took territories for itself. The company's army was composed largely of South Asian mercenaries. Uh, this army grew more powerful. Valuable local allies and a few former enemies were allowed to retain power. The British came to control most of the region, as you can see. So this is uh, uh, the British India in 1900, as you can see, uh, and the uh, green areas. And so you can also see that there were some Indian states that had indirect British rule. So they had formed alliances with the British, uh, and the British really kind of told these folks what to do. Um, then we also had some British protectors that were in yellow. And then uh, the um, Portuguese actually controlled some territory, mostly along the coast here, right around Goa. Um, from, uh, so let's move from company control, which was really what occurred here. Uh, uh, the, actually, the British East India uh, Company controlled most of this territory up until a rebellion of, of the mercenary soldiers that occurred in 1856, and this was referred to as the Sepoy Mutiny. As a result, uh, South Asia came under direct British control. So rather than being uh, under indirect control and the British um, using its authority uh, or uh, posing its, imposing its authority through the allies that had, that had created, the British took direct control after the Sepoy Mutiny. Britain's colony included the Indus, uh, the Indus Ganges uh, Valley, most of the coastal plains, as well as Sri Lanka. Uh, there uh, remains some indirect rule in other areas, as you, once again, as you can see from this map in 1900. But for the most part, uh, we have British direct rule, as you can see the green colors, the Indus and Ganges Valley, and, uh, and so forth throughout the peninsula. Uh, the, uh, the British uh, created uh, three cities to rule the region, Calcutta, Mumbai, and Madras. And these were referred to as cap, uh, um, presidential cities. Uh, the British established a new capital in 1911 uh, to oversee the entire area. And this was New Delhi, as I had mentioned before. So our, our, our president cities were Mumbai, Calcutta, as well as Madras down in here. And so each of these cities had control over certain areas during the, um, uh, during the um, uh, indirect rule. And then the British eventually in 1911 uh, uh, maintained New Delhi as its uh, capital city to oversee the entire colony. Now I want to move on to take a look at independence and partition in the region. Independence movements began in the 1920s. Um, Mohandas Gandhi, 
uh, the father figure of India favored a unified state encompassing all South Asian British territories. That would include Hindu and Muslims together. The Muslim leaders argued for two new countries, a Hindu-majority India and a Muslim-majority Pakistan. Because really what the, what the Muslim leaders uh, feared was that they, would, they were largely outnumbered by the Hindus and that they would play a very small role in, in a uh, completely unified state. Uh, there, um, after World War II, uh, the British withdrew from the region. Uh, and this created uh, not, uh, this really created disarray in the area. Uh, the um, many mass migrations and many deaths followed the partitioning of the of the of this area into India and what became Pakistan. So let me just point out on the map exactly what happened here. So uh, with partition and with the British withdrawal. Uh, Two, uh, two major countries uh, evolved. India, of course, which be, was largely a Hindu state, and then Pakistan. And Pakistan was divided into West Pakistan, which is the Pakistan that we know today, for, uh, and then also East Pakistan, which uh, then separated uh, from um, the rest of Pakistan in 1971. And what we essentially had was we had mass movements of people as Muslims tried to escape uh, the Hindu-controlled territory into either West Pakistan or into East Pakistan, and Hindus tried to escape what uh, eventually became Muslim-controlled uh, territories of West Pakistan and East Pakistan. So these mass uh, migrations, uh, and it's estimated something like 14 million people crossed over the borders, and there were hundreds of thousands of deaths in this movement as ethnic conflict evolved and people just uh, um, starved to death and things like that. It was really uh, dis, uh, disarray. Um, so as I mentioned, Pakistan in two parts, East and West Pakistan. In 1971, Bangladesh separated and formed, uh, formed uh, East Pakistan separated and formed Bangladesh. Uh, the Muslims moved to Pakistan, the Hindus to India uh, during the uh, mass migrations. And so this is what uh, the region looks like today, pretty much. Uh, we can see, you can see uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, and Sri Lanka, of course, and the Maldives. So this is the geopolitical situation today. Uh, so I've already talked about some of these things, uh, so I'm not really going to go into great detail on this. Uh, we talked about the East India Company and its control over the region. First of all, it was indirect control where they used uh, Indian leaders uh, uh, to control the territories and to, uh, and, but they were actually kind of controlled by the Indian, uh, by the British, and told what to do. And then we had the Sepoy Mutiny in 1853, as I mentioned, and that's when. Uh, the British uh, took direct control of the region and established New Delhi as its capital in 1953. Um, Mohandas Gandhi uh, fought for independence from the 1920s. Uh, Mohandas Gandhi is uh, the father figure of India, uh, nonviolent uh, uh, civil disobedience to gain independence of the of the area. And unfortunately, uh, he was assassinated and. Uh, and since that time, actually, we've had very violent uprisings uh, throughout the region. Um, India became a federal state, and we'll uh, talk more about that in a few minutes. But uh, you can see from the map here, um, 
as I mentioned, in 1900, this is what the region looked like. And then we saw what the region looked like. So you can see British direct rule in the green areas. British continued to control uh, the areas in this kind of brownish color through uh, indirect rule. Okay. And then you can see we had, we had the French here. We had the Portuguese in the area of Goa as well. Okay, so uh, and this image here is actually the partition uh, led to violence and bloodshed between Muslims and Hindus. And you can see the people packed on the trains uh, trying to move across the borders in this particular image. It was a particularly bloody uh, movement of people and uh, very unfortunate. Okay, I, I'm sorry, and actually before I went to the conflict in Kashmir, I wanted to actually talk a little bit about uh, the federal state in, um, uh, in India. India is actually organized as a federal state, much like the United States. Um, uh, power is vested in individual states. Now, obviously, the federal government has certain powers, and they've given certain powers to the states, much like, we, uh, uh, like our arrangement here in the United States. The national government handles foreign affairs and interstate economic issues. The Indian states correspond to linguistic groups. So what we'll see on the uh, map of India is most of the states, um, most of the people that live in the individual states, uh, they speak a particular language. Only the largest ethnic groups had their own states, however. Smaller ethnic groups are pushing for their own states as well. So that you can see that um, uh, the large states, the large ethnic groups control their own states, uh, but they also have smaller ethnic groups within those states. And within those, and some of those smaller ethnic groups are pushing for autonomy over their own regions and, and want to have their own states. Okay, so now let's move on and take a look at the uh, ethnic conflict in Kashmir, uh, which has uh, been ongoing for uh, a number of decades and probably since the um, uh, partition of this region. So um, the ethnic conflicts in South Asia, the, in Kashmir, there's a large Muslim core within, with, uh, uh, with, within this, in this Indian district. Some Muslims want, to, want Kashmir to join Pakistan. Uh, others want an independent state. There's really no uh, uh, site to the, uh, to the end of the conflict in this region. So three-quarters of the population are, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, let me uh, add a little bit more onto this uh, conflict. So, as I mentioned, during the British period, Kashmir was a large state with a Muslim core joined with, with the, within the Hindu district in the south. Later, it was ruled by a Hindu Maharaja. Uh, the king was subject to British advisors. Partition. <coughs> during partition, both India and Pakistan fought for the region. The two countries continued to fight uh, inconclusive wars over the region. 87% of the people of Kashmir desire independence, though neither India nor Pakistan want that. <coughs> so you can see from the map here, the green area is claimed by Pakistan, but is controlled by India. And then you can see this kind of goldish color is claimed by India, but is, is claimed by India, but is controlled by Pakistan. Um, so we can see that there's also other conflicts within this uh, relatively small area. Well, you can see that we have uh, this area um, claimed by India, 
but it's controlled by China in this area here. Um, this kind of, I guess that's almost an orangish color in here and also here. And then you can also see that we have areas that are claimed by India. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, you can also see that we have this Islamic Emirate of Wasiristan. <coughs> Excuse me. And these are actually areas that are part of Pakistan's Pakistan territory, but the Pakistani government really has almost no control over this area uh, because it's controlled by tri uh, by uh, tribal leaders. And this is sometimes referred to as the tribal areas of Pakistan. You may have heard of these areas in uh, in the news because these are the areas where we have a lot of smuggling across the border in Afghanistan of um, al-Qaeda fighters and other fighters that um, uh, are protected in this area and then they, they um, move across the border. This is a very mountainous area, very rugged area, very difficult area um, uh, to operate in. Uh, so uh, not only do soldiers, uh, uh, fighters go across this area, but also supplies go across this area to help supply the fighters, uh, the Al-Qaeda fighters and other fighters in this area that are fighting the U.S. troops in, the, and, uh, in this area, and obviously also the Afghan army as well. Uh, this is an Indian soldier in Kashmir as well, as you can see, looking over to check on the uh, Indian, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the Pakistani soldiers on the other side of the border. Uh, so let's talk a, a bit about some of the ethnic conflict in the Punjab. Uh, there's religious conflict in the, uh, in the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to change that slide. Uh, there's ethnic conflict in the Punjab as well. Um, there's a conflict between the Hindus and Sikhs, as I mentioned before. The Sikhs want, uh, want uh, the Indian government to recognize Sikhism as a separate religion rather than a sect of Hinduism. Radical Sikhs want independence, and they want to separate completely from, uh, from India. Uh, and as I mentioned, I believe, before, uh, they want to create their own uh, state, uh, that would be called Khalistan, or their own country that would be called uh, Khalistan. Sikhs are actually pretty militaristic uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, they formed the major part of the uh, army for the uh, British when the British had control of this area, and they continue to uh, 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 form a large proportion of the Indian army. Uh, the, Sikh, uh, the Sikhs were also bodyguards for the president Indira Gandhi, and it was actually a Sikh bodyguard who assassinated her in 1984. Uh, the Sikh region uh, is now under martial law. And I also wanted to point out, this is the Sikh temple near Amritsar, uh, in the area that we're talking about near, in Punjab. And this temple was actually attacked by, the, uh, by Hindu nationalists as well, and actually occupied uh, for a while by Hindu nationalists and before, before they were uh, removed from the temple. A lot of uh, Sikhs have been leaving the region, uh, emigrating from the region because some of the violence that has occurred there. Now let's move on. Um, so uh, this is the India-Bangladesh India border fence, as you can see. Um, and so uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the problems in that area, uh, really what we call the Northeast Fringe. Uh, this is a remote area of uplands of India's extreme northeast. Migrants from Bangladesh and other Indian provinces are viewed uh, negatively 
negatively by the indigenous peoples as they, as they move into these areas. The locals have attacked the immigrants. And so you can see uh, there's actually a, a fence, a border fence between India and Bangladesh uh, to try to control the immigration, or the immigration across this border. Um, so in Sri Lanka, we've had ongoing uh, inter-ethnic violence between the Hindu Tamils of the north, okay, so up in this area here, and the Buddhist Sinhalese of the south, uh, so down in this area, as you can see. So you can see from the map, the Tamil uh, Hindus are in this kind of salmon color, pinkish color, if you wish. Uh, the Sinhalese Buddhists control much of this area down in here, but you can also see there's some, um, uh, there some, interdispersal of the Tamil, uh, uh, Tamil Hindus in this area and other areas where they, uh, where there's, uh, where they interact with one another or, or uh, overlapping territory and so forth. Uh, the Sinhalese nationalists favor a unitary government with the Tamils demand for a political and cultural autonomy over their areas uh, since 1983. The Tamil Tigers or the Liberation Tigers of Tamil uh, Ilham. Uh, actually, uh, their insurgency has uh, kind of come to an end. Um, they have actually been sort of defeated in 2009, and so a lot of the violence that was occurring in Sri Lanka, and it was a very violent and very bloody, uh, I guess we would call it civil war or whatever, um, has actually uh, come to an end since 2009. Now, will it remain? Um, uh, under control, it's hard to say. It really depends, uh, particularly how the Tamil, uh, the uh, Hindu Tamils feel about their treatment uh, at the hands of the Sinhalese Buddhists. So, um, you know, right now things are under control, but uh, and hopefully will remain that way um, into the future. But only time can tell, right? Um, so, as we, uh, I wanted to also mention before we moved in on to uh, uh, the economic and social development, um, there's also been a malice challenge, uh, and I pointed that out on the earlier map. Not all conflicts are rooted in ethnic or religious factors. Poverty and inequality have generated revolutionary movements. Many of these find, uh, many of these movements find inspiration in the former Chinese leader Mao Zedong. Uh, the, there's a Nepalese, Nepalese, uh, Nepalese Maoist movement, uh, in particular, have emerged as, as a significant force since the 1990s. However, they've been frustrated by the lack of development in rural areas. And we also saw that in India, there's also some uh, Maoist movements that have been taking place as well. And, of course, all these different uh, conflicts in this region have uh, an international aspect to them. Major, major international geo, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's major international geopolitical problems in these struggles between India and Pakistan. Both have nuclear capabilities, as I mentioned before. Pakistan is allied with the United States, was allied with the United States during the Cold War. India remained neutral, but leaned towards the Soviet Union. China's military connection with Pakistan is rooted uh, in uh, past war, uh, in 1962 with India over territory in the northern Kashmir. Trade has lessened the tension between China and India. I also want to mention that um, in Pakistan, for example, there's a complex geopolitical situation. After the attacks, uh, 
on, on the United States on September 11th, September 11th, 2001. Pakistan had supported Afghan's Taliban regime. The U.S. forced Pakistan to either assist the United States against the Taliban and receive debt reductions and other forms of economic aid, or it will lose favor. Pakistan decided to support the United States, sparking protests within its country. Pakistan continues to face Islamist insurgencies, and that's a real fear for the United States. If the Islamist insurgencies are able to overtake um, the Pakistani government that controls nuclear weapons, what happens to those nuclear weapons? Do they then fall into the hands of the Islamist insurgencies? Uh, so this geopolitical conflict uh, is really, really uh, a dangerous situation uh, in, in the region. The geopolitical conflict with India also is a problem uh, because if India would decide to uh, 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 overtake the area, uh, uh, you know, uh, attack Pakistan, for, exa uh, for example, that could spark uh, the use of nuclear weapons as well. Um, India also has uh, a changing geopolitical situation. Its relations with Bangladesh have de deteriorated in the late 1990s because of India's concerns over illegal Bangladesh, Bangladeshi immigration and fears that Bangladesh uh, was providing refuge to separatist fighters from India's northeast as well. So a very complex situation in this area, and it will be very interesting to see how all these different conflicts uh, eventually play out. So now let's take a, a look at the economic and social development of the region. Uh, South Asia is characterized by developmental paradoxes. It's one of the world's poorest regions, yet uh, it is also the site of some immense fortunes. Many scientific and technological accomplishments, but also some of the world's highest illiteracy rates. It's emerging as a center of global information, as a center of the global information economy, but as a whole, was long one of the world's most self-contained and inward-looking regions. Poverty is widespread. Many suffer from undernourishment, malnourishment, infant mortality is extremely high, but the region, especially India, has, large, has a large and growing middle class, but, uh, and a small but uh, very wealthy upper class as well. So let's take a look at the geographies of economic development. As you can see, uh, our, our, our per capita, our GDP, uh, as you, our GDP per capita, as you can see, in 2006 and 2007. So as I uh, mentioned before, uh, uh, Bihar province, West Bengal, um, and Uttar, province, uh, uh, Uttar Pradesh are some of the poorest areas in India. But also some of the other areas uh, in the central part of India are also extremely poor. Uh, some of the wealthier areas in India include uh, Maharashtra, uh, as well as Gujarat province, as you can see, uh, Goa as well. And then, of course, down along the coast, uh, we have Kerala province, which uh, typically ranks very high in all the social uh, development indicators. Uh, Looking at um, uh, looking at some of the other areas here, you can see we have um, in the northern part Punjab is actually fairly well off, uh, and then we have some of the other uh, provinces that uh, surround um, 
um, surround uh, this area uh, as falling, uh, not as obviously not being as well off as you can see. Okay, uh, this is, uh, I mean, this is something that you'll see, you know, in many, many poor countries. Uh, child labor in India really uh, handicaps children from going to school because their labor is required by their families to help support the family. So children go to, uh, go, uh, go to work at a very young age. Uh, this is obviously in an urban area where we probably have a scavenger. Uh, the family probably makes its living scavenging and recycling. Uh, anything that it can pull out of um, out of the uh, uh, dumps and so forth uh, that usually surround the large cities, and they scavenge this material to sell, to recycle, and so forth. Um, so let's continue taking a look at our geographies of economic development. So. Uh, since the 1990s, uh, uh, several of the countries in this region, especially India, have opened uh, their economies to their global economic system. Uh, the core areas of economic development have emerged, but peripheral areas have lagged far behind, uh, resulting of a landscape of economic disparity. Uh, so we'll take a look at the Himalayan countries first. Both Nepal and Bhutan uh, are disadvantaged by rugged terrain and remote locations. Uh, they remain relatively isolated from modern technology and infrastructure. Many, there are many areas of subsistence-oriented um, agriculture uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout these countries. Bhutan has purposely remained isolated from the global economy. The government promotes gross national happiness instead of gross national product. I actually kind of like that, gross national happiness. Um, uh, Bhutan also exports substantial amounts of hydroelectricity to India. Nepal, more recently, uh, more, is more heavily populated and suffers uh, uh, severe environmental degradation, uh, largely through uh, um, cutting down the trees and erosion and those sorts of things. Tourism has brought some prosperity to Nepal, however, but, also but it also suffers. Remittances from Nepalese migrants uh, help to help it to sustain its economy. And you can see, talked about tourism in Nepal, uh, particularly in the mountainous areas here. Very beautiful territory. People come to climb mountains and things like that, Mount Everest and so forth. Um, Bangladesh. Uh, in Bangladesh, poverty is extreme and widespread. Environmental degradation contributes to impoverishment. Agricultural emphasis on jute has suffered because of the world's use of synthetic materials, which undercut the global jute market. The country has emerged as an important textile and clothing manufacturer, uh, mainly because of the low, uh, low wage rates. And I talked about that before and the problems that uh, uh, that has, in, uh, has uh, the problem, particularly with the uh, labor practices that has emerged from the textile industry and the poor working conditions and the, uh, you know, the hundreds of people that have been killed when these some of these factories have, been, uh, have caught on fire and things like that. Um, let's move on to uh, Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan uh, inherited a fairly well-developed infrastructure after independence. Uh, it shares fertile, um, the, it shares the fertile, pun <coughs> excuse me, Punjab area <coughs> with India. It has large uh, textile industry because of cotton production, but since 2008, the economy has been faltering. 
Uh, the country is burdened by uh, a large military spending. It's unable to develop successful uh, information technology industry, has inadequate energy supplies. It constructed new deepwater port at Gwadar with Chinese engineering and financial assistance. Uh, and and, uh, and it's also and uh, financial assistance uh, from the Chinese. Sri Lanka, and the, moving on to look at the Sri Lanka and the Maldives, Sri Lanka is the second most highly developed uh, area in South Asia. The, its exports are concentrated in textiles, once again because of the low wages, and agricultural products, uh, particularly rubber and tea, uh, but it remains poor. Hopes to, it hopes to benefit from, a port, from its port, high levels of education, and tourism. Uh, potential that the country actually has. Uh, the Maldives economy is based on fishing and international tourism, and both obviously are very vulnerable to uh, global warming and sea level rise. Uh, we're going to talk about India's less developed uh, areas uh, first. Uh, the poorer regions include the north and east, extreme poverty in the lower Ganges uh, Valley. Bihar, is, uh, Bihar province is India's poorest state and most areas are dominated by subsistence economies and agriculture. Uh, some of the centers of growth in India are found mostly in the south and southwest, uh, south and the west. The west central states of Gujarat and Maharashtra are noted for industrial and financial clout and agricultural productivity uh, also in these areas. They benefit from con connections with the Indian diaspora in other parts of the world. Mumbai is uh, located in Maharashtra, uh, is the financial center, media capital, and manufacturing powerhouse. Has uh, large industrial zones are located in the state. Uh, in the center of India, it also is the center of India's fast-growing high. Uh, I'm sorry. The center of India's fast-growing high technology sector is in the south, especially in the city of. Uh, Bangalore, uh, which is now referred to as Bengaluru. Sorry on my pronunciation there. Um, it's difficult to say, actually. Uh, and this is known as the uh, Silicon Plateau. Other high-tech centers include Hyderabad, uh, which is often called Siderabad, and Chennai, which was formerly known as Madras. Uh, so globalization and um, India's economic future. It's not one of the world's most globalized regions, but globalization is advancing very rapidly in, uh, in India. Uh, it, it does not receive yet substantial amounts of, of direct foreign investment, although it has found um, that uh, has as found in China. Consequently, infrastructure overall remains poor, uh, remains poorly developed and inadequate. Electric supply is also inadequate. So very often, uh, if you're in, in India, uh, you'll very often the electricity will very often shut down for uh, several hours during the day, uh, and then it's restored and so forth. Um, so let's take a look at the social development in the area. As you can see, this is the economic uh, development indicators that we often look at. You can see the GNI per capita in the area. Uh, most countries are pretty low in their GNI per capita. Sri Lanka and the Maldives, uh, with, along with Bhutan, uh, have the highest GNI, GNI per capita. Uh, the 
GDP growth rates are pretty good uh, throughout much of the region, but remember, in most of these countries were starting off a very low base. Uh, you can see the human development indicators are not that great for most of these countries. Uh, the Maldives has uh, reasonably high human development into, uh, human development and uh, ranks relatively high on the human development index, as does Sri Lanka. Uh, high levels of poverty, as you can see here, 81% uh, uh, in Bangladesh living on less than $2 a day. Okay, India, three-quarters of its population, more than three-quarters of the population. In uh, Nepal, about 60%. In um, Pakistan, and really, Sri Lanka, once again, fares uh, the best out of all these countries with about 40%. Life expectancies um, are reasonable. They're not great, obviously, in many parts of these areas. Under five mortality uh, in 1990. Uh, was pretty dismal for most of these countries, but you can see we certainly have had some improvement uh, 2000, uh, since uh, uh, since 1990, uh, according to the 2008 uh, data. And then gender equity in most of these uh, countries is uh, is not that great, um, um, uh, except for in Bangladesh. There's been a real move to improve the quality of life for women. But uh, for most countries, it's under 100. And many of the countries lack data. Uh, so uh, you can see in Pakistan, it's actually uh, the gender equity is only about 100, which means that uh, women are mostly uh, discriminated against when it comes to things like education, health care, and so forth, or at least access to those things. So as you can see, social development um, uh, levels of social well-being vary widely across the region. People in the mo more prosperous areas are healthier, live longer, are better educated, obviously. Um, the educated South, Sri Lanka, is considered a success story uh, of social development, um, mainly because government funds uh, provide for universal, uh, universal primary education and inex inexpensive health care. Kerala in southwest, southwest India uh, is crowded and has and has high unemployment, but indices of social development are the best in India, in part because Kerala is led by a socialist party that has stressed mass education and, and community health care. Uh, the status of women um, uh, in this region, um, women throughout the region overall have low social position. Both Hindu and Mu Muslim traditions are, are limited to uh, uh, limit uh, the social mobility of women. Some places exhibit pronounced discrimination, such as in the Indus and Ganges Basin. Mostly in the rural areas you're going to find, and the more traditional areas, you're going to find pronounced discrimination against women. Even in middle-class households, women suffer discrimination and limitations. Uh, the dowry is still uh, used, uh, the, uh, so families have to provide a dowry, dowry uh, to the uh, husband's family when the woman goes to be married, um, which I mentioned before. And there continues to be uh, bri uh, bride murders, and there also continues to be uh, the killing of uh, wives when their husband dies, uh, because the, uh, the, husband family, the husband's family do not, does not want to take care of them. 
Uh, there's laws against the practices, but these have largely been ignored. Social bias against women is less evident in southern India as well as in Sri Lanka. So here's some of the, uh, we can just take a look at some of the, so this is the Pakistan soccer ball factory, and I can tell you it's, um, uh, soccer is, uh, uh, is, uh, uh, is uh, well-watched, or at least, um, yes, well-received in uh, South Asia. But cricket is probably the biggest sport in this region. Um, sorry, I didn't want to um, change that. Uh, cricket is probably the, uh, the biggest sport in this region that's played in this sport uh, that was brought in by the British, of course. So this is a soccer ball factory. And then you can see our total exports uh, in this region. Uh, you know, uh, Sri Lanka, it, it appears, uh, ranks the highest along with uh, Bhutan. It's probably mostly uh, uh, exports that's uh, related to tourism. And then uh, you can see, um, what else do we have on this map? We have our uh, uh, population using the internet. And you can see this is actually fairly low in most places in this, uh, in this region. Uh, so as we talked about, uh, we have relatively low levels of health and education, several pronounced discrepancies that uh, I mentioned, Sri Lanka and Kerala. Um, usually rank the highest in the social development indicators. This is a school in, in Kerala, South, uh, South Asia's most highly educated region. We talked about the status of women, and gender ratios um, favor men in this region, uh, unlike most populations, mainly because of the importance of having male offspring in the region, and also through uh, uh, the fact that uh, we have something in this region that's called differential neglect. So if a family has both male children and female children, and there's a shortage of food, uh, the male children will get the food, the female child will be left to starve. Uh, access to education. If uh, a family has to pay for the ch children to go to school, the male child will be uh, sent to school, the female child will not. Um, there's also the uh, access to health care. If a female child becomes ill, um, the male child will receive health care and not the female child. And so what this has uh, actually led to is uh, um, lower life expectancy in many cases for female uh, in this region compared to, uh, compared to males. And so that's why we see a gender imbalance. Not the same sort of gender imbalance that we would find in East Asia, East Asia however. So that brings us to a conclusion on our lecture in, on South Asia. And just to conclude and wrap up the area, as we saw, South Asia, though a very large, has been somewhat overshadowed by other regions of the world. But increasingly, South Asia figures prominently in discussions of world problems and issues and issues. Environmental degradation and instability pose particular problems for this region. Rising sea level directly threatens the Maldives and Bangladesh, as I mentioned before. Uh, continued population growth demands attention. Fertility rates have declined, but countries are still unable to support these expanding populations that they're experiencing. South Asia exhibits diverse culture, a diverse cultural heritage. Ethnic and or religious conflicts increased throughout the 20th century, and particularly uh, with, the, uh, with the independence from the British. Geopolitical tensions within the region remain. 
notably the border dispute between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. Although the region remains one of the poorest of the world, South Asia has been seen rapid, though geographically varied, economic expansion. So that concludes South Asia. Uh, when we come back uh, for the next series of lectures, we'll be taking a look at Southeast Asia.